0: All right. Thank you, Ali and Kalen, for praying and reading for us. Uh, we've just heard our text read, and I'm sure that for many of you, it was a very familiar one, or at least verse twelve probably was, right? The living and active Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, verse uh, four, verse twelve. Hebrews four, verse twelve is a perennial favorite. Um, among the inspirational memesters, and it pops up in just about every uh, daily verse collection you could imagine. And as I suspected and confirmed by Google, it is also a favorite amongst those who like to tattoo scripture passages on themselves. I like the verse myself too. It's what drew me to this text. Um, And I think some of that draw, some of that popularity of this text is attributed to this, the great imagery of this verse and how it shows the the power of God's Word. But there's so much more going on here than just cool imagery and a general sense of the Word's power. The ideas contained in this verse are crucial to our spiritual well-being. And so we're going to unpack them together. But first, a little background, because this is a Uh, one-off sermon. It's not part of a series. We're just jumping into Hebrews. Uh, I need to provide a little bit of background for us to to better understand the context of our text today. So firstly, uh, scholars don't actually know who the author of the letter is. Um, There's many different theories. There have been many different ideas throughout the history of the church, but the truth is that no one really knows. And all that we can say with any real certainty is that Whoever the author is, they wrote as a highly educated Greek person. Uh, They had exceptional knowledge of the Old Testament. And they interpreted the Old Testament in the light of Christ. Um, They also had a genuine pastoral affection for the audience that they were writing to. Um, And so our best guess is they were probably someone from Paul's camp. They were a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian who had a pastoral relationship to this congregation that they're writing to. And whoever the author is, he's also writing to an unknown audience. Unlike most biblical letters, the letter of Hebrews does not begin with an address. In fact, uh, it doesn't begin in any way typical of the other biblical epistles. Uh, the author simply jumps right into the body of the letter right from the start of verse 1. But it's clear from the language, the imagery the frequent unsighted use of the Old Testament, that the author assumes his audience's familiarity with the Jewish scriptures, and it's also clear from how he uses and applies them that he assumes his audience are Christ followers as well. And so the best that we can surmise about his audience is that they are also comprised of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, most likely members of a house church that is facing a significant opposition. Because the spirit of the entire letter is one of deep pastoral concern for the spiritual well-being of this congregation and heartfelt encouragement for them to persevere in their faith in the face of trials and pressures to give up their Christian faith and revert to Judaism. And I would suggest that the message is no less relevant for you and I today than it was for the original audience in their day. The trials and pressures that we are under as modern-day Christians in the West is no doubt different than it was for these first-century Christians, but the temptation remains the same. And so the Holy Spirit, through the author of this letter, encourages us to to strive to enter that rest. And I hope to present that encouragement to you today under these three headings, the call to strive, the means of striving, and the method of striving. All right, the call, the means, the method. And so let's dive into this text and see what it has to say. Point one, the call to strive. Verse 11 Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Our passage opens with the instruction to strive to enter that rest. What is that rest that the author is referring to? Well, our text also starts with a therefore. And to use the tired old adage, when we are reading the Bible and we come across the word therefore, we have to ask the question, what is it there for? <laughs> and to properly answer that question, we need to do a brief flyover of the passage that precedes these verses, because our text is actually a conclusion to a long passage that starts all the way back in chapter 3, verse 7. And it begins with a lengthy quotation from Psalm 95. Uh And this is David speaking to his contemporaries in his day, saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. David's pointing back to the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus events. They've been freed miraculously from Egypt, and they have entered into covenant with God at Sinai, and now in the desert, they are grumbling, and they turn their backs on God. The psalm goes on. This is God responding in Psalm 95. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. David is imploring his own audience not to do the same. All right? That the penalty for Israel that David is referencing, this historical event, was that they couldn't enter the promised land of Canaan. So what is the rest that David is referring to? Because David is now writing uh, as someone who has been firmly established in the promised land. Right? He's he's writing as king of Israel, possibly approaching the height of their glory as a nation. So what is the rest that David is referring to? David is probably looking ahead to the earthly reign of the coming promised Messiah uh, as the rest that he and his people are striving for. And yet here, the author of Hebrews, writing after the death, resurrection, and ascension of that long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, is still urging his audience to enter that rest. And so it's obvious that the rest that we are talking about is the full and Final fulfillment of this promised rest of God in eternity with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what the writer of Hebrews is calling his audience to strive to enter. It's the rest that we are being called to strive to enter. But doesn't that sound a little odd? That language strive to enter into the eternal rest. Those of us with gospel-trained ears, when we hear the command to strive, we can sometimes hear words like work or earn instead, right? But aren't those concepts in direct opposition to the gospel? That's what we've been taught so many times, right? But the striving that we're being called to here is not the striving of earning. Rather, it is the striving of confirming what has already been made true. All right, and this kind of striving is all over Scripture, and that's the case I want to make to you. Um, Peter, in his second letter, he's writing into similar circumstances with similar pastoral concern. You know, and he writes, and he says, for this very reason, this is in response to having received the promise of salvation, for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith. And with your faith, with virtue. And then he says, with knowledge, with self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affectionate, love. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. Verse 11, "For for in this way you will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, here, links striving an entrance to the eternal kingdom. So what's going on here? James, in chapter 2 of his epistle, says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's saying that true faith looks like something. Something. He goes on to say that faith without works is dead. So true faith strives. True faith perseveres. True faith clings to the promises of Scripture. Are you feeling weary? Are you feeling worn out in your faith life? Are you feeling spiritually dry or distant you feel worn out and feel like giving up, too tired to go on. The path to the rest that you are longing after is a surprising one. The way to that rest is through striving. That is what this book says. We are called to strive. All right, point two, the means of striving. We look at verse 12 and 13 for this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. i stop there for now. The word is living and active. This is not just another dusty old book. This is not simply a list of do's and don'ts or an antiquated morality or a dead orthodoxy. It is alive. It acts upon things. It has purposes to accomplish. The word acts in at least two important ways that we're going to talk about today. First, it feeds us. And secondly, it corrects us. Okay, first, it feeds us. What do I mean by that? To answer that question, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 55. I'll wait a second for you to get there. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. And I'm reading from the ESV. The word of God falls on your soul like rain on a dry and barren land. It brings life. It brings vitality. It brings fruit. It is also seed to the sower. Its blessings multiply and overflow, blessing those that come into contact with the one impacted by the word. It is bread to the eater, Water alone can sustain your life for a period of time. But we need nourishment to thrive. The Word is your spiritual nourishment. By it, your faith will not only survive, but it will thrive. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is probably the only verse in Scripture more famous than this one that for talking about Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. By the nourishment of the word, your faith is strengthened and equipped to strive But 2 Timothy 3 also reveals the other major way that God's word acts, right? It says here, it's not just teaching and training, but also reproof and correction. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Biblical reproof and correction are always carried out with restoration as the goal. It is never purely punitive, or merely punitive, rather. Kids, if you've ever gone bowling, you know, five-pin bowling at one of those five-pin bowling lanes, um, there's the option for the gutter bumpers, right? The goal of biblical correction is to keep you from falling off the edge of the lane into the gutter, but rather to bump you back into the middle of the lane as many times as needed to get you to the end of the lane. That is the way biblical correction functions. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it says here, the image is not of a fearsome warrior hacking and slashing at you, but rather of the Holy Spirit as a master surgeon wielding the word of God as his scalpel. It is a precision surgical instrument. It says here piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. With the word in his hands, the spirit is able to penetrate the impenetrable, to to divide the indivisible, and to discern the indiscernible. And we need this because as Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord answers, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. And he does so through his word. We are so easily self-deceived. We twist ourselves into pretzels trying to justify our sin to ourselves and to everyone around us. And the pathetic thing is that we often believe our own lies. Our hearts are deceitful and sick. For sure, we cannot be trusted to discern our own thoughts and motivations. When we read the scripture, it reads us. When we are exposed to God's word, It exposes us. It knows us better than we know ourselves. Verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Scripture devastates any notion that we are good people. It strips away the facade of piety or good deeds that we try to hide behind it leaves us utterly exposed and without excuse before God. And honestly, it reveals how embarrassingly low we set the bar for ourselves. All right, so scripture is the means of striving. Now, what do we do with all this? Thirdly, so we have the method of striving. There is a right way and a wrong way to strive. If you are feeling weary, worn out, spiritually burdened or dry or distant from God, as I asked earlier, the worst thing you can do is to try and white-knuckle your way back to spiritual vitality in your own strength. That is striving after the fruit, right? That is like stapling a bunch of leaves on a withering tree, trying to make it look alive and healthy. It's a losing battle. You will crash and burn. You need to strive to nourish the roots. Let's go back to Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. Notice that it's the water coming down from heaven, which God says is like his word. It's the water coming down from heaven that makes the ground bring forth and sprout. You can't produce the freight the the fruit of faith in yourself. That is not your job. Instead, put yourself in the path of the life-giving water and let it do its work in you. The creator of the universe is speaking to you. He has initiated a conversation with you. His words are living and active. Fight to make the space in your life to hear what he has to say to you, fight for it. I often have conversations with people about their uh, personal devotional lives. And oftentimes those conversations are about being frustrated that they can't seem to maintain any sort of a meaningful devotional life. And trust me, I, I understand that struggle very much so. I in some ways get paid to study the Bible and I also feel like I struggle to maintain a meaningful devotional relationship. So it's not it's not something that's uncommon. And one of the things I hear over and over again is that people are at a phase in their life where they simply don't have enough time for an intensive daily routine. And Paul talked about this in his vlog this week, and I promise we we actually didn't plan this. It was just, he happened to be teaching on, on Psalm 1, and I was teaching on this verse, and when we talked a little bit about my sermon, he's like, oh, you're kind of talking about what I was talking about. So, you know, hopefully if this doesn't work out real well for you, then you can go watch the vlog. <laughs> um but yeah, one of the most common things that come up again is that people are at a phase in their life where they simply don't have to, or they feel they don't have time for an intensive daily routine. But no matter how busy you are, surely you can fit 15 to 20 minutes of reading and responsive prayer into your schedule somewhere. Certainly. And I realize that's not your ideal situation, but it's practical. So start there. Build the habit Do you have any idea what the living and active word of God could do with your life with just 15 minutes a day of engagement? Feed on this word. Hold your life up to its mirror. And then respond. James, in chapter one of his epistle says, be doers of the word how James puts acting and doing in the category of persevering or striving. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, he will be blessed in his doing. When we hold our lives up to the mirror of God's word, it reveals the ugliness of sin and the pride and unbelief that necessarily accompany it. We can't just walk away from it. We can't just forget about it. It demands a response. There's a little personal anecdote. Yesterday, while I was preparing to preach today, um, I remembered that we needed to film Kalen reading the scripture passage for today. And... um, yeah, so my, my wife came, brought him down uh, to the office where I was working back here so that we could do that. But I felt that because this was an interruption of, of my very important time, uh, that it was an inconvenience to me, that I wanted things to go my way. Um, and, you know, we kind of butted heads a little bit about what we were doing. And, I, and this, I know that this will be hard for some of you to imagine, but I responded by being dismissive and kind of a jerk, in truth. Um, and I felt I felt justified in the way I acted at the moment, but then after they left, I sat back down to continue working on my sermon, and I was flipping through the scriptures. And as you know, as you've gathered by now, I've made a lot of cross references throughout the scriptures. And one of the passages that I was looking at was in Ephesians six, where Paul talks about uh, putting on the full armor of God and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word, right? Um, and as I was flipping there, I just I flipped open to the chapter before, you know, the middle of chapter 5 of Ephesians. And uh, there it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's just a knife in the chest in that moment. Right? I can't act like a jerk to my wife and then read those words and not respond to it. I had to stop what I was doing right then and there. I needed to repent and I needed to apologize to my wife. And this wasn't some cosmic guilt trip that made that happen. It was a correction, right? As we talked about before, it was a reminder to me that me being called to love my wife is because Christ first loved me. I'm not told to love my wife, and then Christ will love me, right? Our striving is a responsive striving. And I think, I think this is well illustrated in the words of Jesus himself from Matthew 11. And I'm going to end here-ish. He says, come to me all you, this is Matthew 11, 28, 29, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is saying these words, this is Jesus, the word made flesh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he has gone ahead of you and finished the work on your behalf. Okay, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to use this analogy, but I couldn't get it out of my head. Honestly, I tried to think of something better, but I keep going back to the bowling alley thing with the bumpers. It is as though Jesus, our big brother, has gone ahead of us and bowled a perfect game. Then he has taken the score for that perfect game and written it in our column Then he flips the switch for the bumpers to come on. And now what we are called to do is to bowl through our frames and simply finish the game. The score is guaranteed. It's already been won. It's his, it's his to do with what he wants and he gives it to you. We just have to strive to the end of the game. He has guaranteed that you will find rest for your soul because he has purchased it with his very Life. My friends, strive to enter that rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your living and active word, penetrating to the division of joints and marrow soul and spirit, Lord, discerning our hearts, thoughts, and intentions. Lord, thank you. By the power of your spirit, enable us to strive for and to reach the promised rest that you have guaranteed for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.